Luke chapter number 10 this morning, and I believe this would be the mind of God for us. Uh, you know, the Word of God, the Bible says that no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation. Uh, that the prophecy was not given by man, uh, but holy men of God, uh, holy men of old spake. They were moved by the Holy Ghost. The Word of God is inspired. And uh, the King James Bible you have sitting before you, the inspiration of God has been preserved in it, and it's perfect, and it's without error, and uh, it's absolutely flawless. And so as we approach the Scripture this morning, I think it's important that we understand that there's a difference between interpretation and application. You say, well, preacher, what do you mean? Well, the interpretation is what we believe about the context and about the truth of what is written. Uh, you know, when you read in the Word of God and the Bible uh, tells me that Christ spoke and He said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman, ye are the branches. I believe that literally happened. I believe that Christ literally spoke that. But now Christ was speaking metaphorically or speaking in a parable when He spoke that. He's not a literal vine. He is the Son of God. Uh, but in a metaphorical sense, He is the true vine. And so you understand that the interpretation is that Christ literally uh, spoke these things. The application, though, uh, is that you and I are part of the Son of God. He's part of us if we have accepted Him as our Lord and Savior, and uh, that He is working in us and through us, and that the Father is the husbandman. So you understand there's a difference between interpretation and application. Every scripture of the Word of God has one interpretation. It is either uh, a literal or a metaphorical, however you'd like to describe it. Uh, but we believe in the literal interpretation of the Word of God around here. But there's many applications of the Word of God that can be made to the heart and the condition of man and the circumstances of the believer. So this morning in Luke chapter number 10, I'd like to begin reading in verse number 25. And I want you to keep those things in mind as we read the Word of God. The Bible says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. Now here's the million-dollar question. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves which stripped him of his raiment, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him, and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him. Whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three, thinkest thou, was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him, then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of a place in your throne room, Lord. An opportunity to pray and to speak. 
heart to heart with the God of heaven. Now, Lord, we'd ask that you'd meet all these prayer requests that have already been offered. And, Lord, it swells my heart as a pastor and it blesses me to know that we have a people whose uh, ultimate and whose immediate reaction is to go to you in prayer when there's a need. Lord, we know you're honored by that and we know you'll honor us in that. And we ask that you'd meet these requests and needs that have been offered before you. But Lord, now as we turn our attention to your word, we ask that you'd speak to every heart. Lord, that you give me unction and power in the preaching, that you give unction and liberty in the uh, listening, and Lord, that the Holy Ghost would be able to move freely in this place from heart to heart and to speak to each heart according to your will. If there's one amongst us that's lost and undone, show them their need of Calvary. We'll be sure to thank you for it. We ask all these things in Christ's precious and high and holy name. Amen. Now, as I've already noted, there's one interpretation of the Word of God. Uh, The interpretation, the literal interpretation of this passage is that Christ was speaking this as a parable uh, to those that were standing around Him. There was one that came to the Lord and said, what do I need to do to be saved? That's essentially what He's saying, isn't He? What must I do to inherit eternal life? The Lord says, well, read the book, read the law. This is what you must do if you, through your own merit, wish to attain eternal life. And uh, he goes through and he says that you've got to love the Lord thy God, verse 27, with all thy heart and with all thy soul, with all thy strength and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. The Lord said, that's right. If you can do that flawlessly, sinlessly, perfectly, then you could uh, earn or attain or inherit eternal life. And, uh, you know, that fellow thought he had done that. You know, that's just how the human heart is. Uh, We think we've never done a thing wrong. And, uh, you know, you have people say sometimes, well, you made a mistake. You just rear back and uh, you say, well, hang with me. That's the first one. Amen. You know, uh, that's our attitude about things. But then uh, the man asked an interesting question. Uh, to the Savior, he said, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Well, now, the moral of this uh, parable that Christ gave is found down in verse uh, number 36 when the Lord turns it around on him. And he doesn't say, who is your neighbor? He says, who have you been a neighbor to? But uh, the interpretation is that Christ was teaching this. We don't suppose there was a a literal uh, man that fell on this road that is literally being referenced. We don't suppose that there was a literal Samaritan. This is a picture, a story, a type for a spiritual truth. But now as you read this passage, uh, you also come to understand that there's a lot of different ways that we could apply this to our daily lives. I believe that the uh, strict context of what's being spoken of here puts the Samaritan as an example of what the believer ought to be and ought to do. And by the way, this passage, and we're not going to preach on this thought necessarily, but this passage answers the who, the when, the where, and the what of our responsibility to those around. First question that man ever asked God, Cain looked at the Lord and said, Am I my brother's keeper? And the good Samaritan shows us that we have a duty and a responsibility to show compassion to a lost and hell-bound and broken and bruised world. But this morning, I don't want to see the Samaritan as the saint. I believe that that's true, and I believe it's a good application, and if the Lord gives us liberty, we may preach on it tonight. But this morning, I want to preach to you on the thought of the Samaritan Savior. 
You see, this morning as I read this passage, I understand that the Samaritan is the example for the actions of each and every believer, how they ought to live, what they ought to do. The Bible teaches that the Lord Jesus Christ is our example. Do you know that this Samaritan, in a lot of ways, pictures our Lord and Savior and what He did for us on Calvary and individually? Now you say, well, preach, that's not what I believe about it. Well, when you got church, you can preach on it, amen? But uh, this morning, I believe that there is a truth truth here that can bless our hearts and encourage us if we see ourselves as this man in the ditch. Do you know that's where you were when God found you? You may not felt that way, you may not saw it that way, but the truth of the matter is there's not a single one of us that wasn't lying half dead in a ditch in a spiritual sense when the Samaritan Savior came our way and rescued us from ourselves and our sins. As we read this passage, I just want to note a few things and I don't know if I'm sick or you are, but I don't know if you're quite with me this morning. That's all right. We'll, we'll push through anyway, won't we? I want you to notice, first off, the sojourner that's spoken of. Look again with me at verse number 30. Here's our introduction to this man. We do not know his name. We do not know much about him. But we do know the condition that he's found in. And by the way, you know that's really what matters. It doesn't matter who or what you are. It's about the condition that you're found in. It says, "...in Jesus answering said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho." Notice the road that he was on. Now, this is important. He went down. By the way, as you read the Word of God and as you study, you'll find that Jericho is north of Jerusalem. But any time a man left Jerusalem, the Bible always said he was going down. If he went to Jerusalem, he was always spoken of as going up because it's not a geographical thing, it's a spiritual thing. The Bible says that he was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, most of us are familiar with the place Jericho. You've probably read about it and heard about it and studied about it. You've probably been a little lad or lass sitting in a Sunday school class and your Sunday school teacher uh, brought out those old uh, felt boards and flannel graphs and taught you about the walls of Jericho, uh, about how Jericho... Joshua led the nation of Israel, this nomadic, warfaring people of God, uh, to march seven times uh, for seven days around the city of Jericho to blow their trumpets, to cry aloud, and the walls came tumbling down. But what you may not remember is that in verse or in chapter number 7 of the book of Joshua, God attached to the city of Jericho a very bleak and a very serious warning. He said that anyone that ever builds this city again, that their family's going to be cursed, that the sword would not depart from their children, that the Lord would obliterate and annihilate that family, whoever it was, that literally the wrath of God would abide upon the city of Jericho. And can I say to you this morning that when this man traveled from Jerusalem to Jericho, he was walking along a doomed road. His destination that he was headed to was a doomed city. Didn't matter what the road looked like he was walking on, his destination was a cursed place. Can I say to you that in a lot of ways this sojourner pictures the sinner. You know why that is? Because it doesn't matter what the road looks like that he's traveling on. Every single sinner in this world, if he dies without Christ, and friend, you say, well, I'm a churchman. Well, it doesn't matter what your road looks like. You say, well, I'm a moral person. Well, it doesn't matter what your road looks like. What's your destination? 
You know, that's what really starts to upset people. I found this to be true in witnessing to people. You can talk theology all day long, but if you just point blank ask a man, where are you going to go when you die? That's when they start to get upset and start to get nervous. You see, the real truth of the matter is this. There's no peace in the sinner's heart. It doesn't matter how beautiful of a day he's walking this road. It doesn't matter if the storms are raging or if the sun is shining. It doesn't matter if he's got a a full uh, wallet on him. It doesn't matter if his horse is in good shape. It doesn't matter what his condition. At the end of the day, every single sinner is on a doomed road headed to a cursed destination. The Bible teaches that every single one of us are born in iniquity and sin. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning. It's always funny. It's like the Lord gets me geared up for preaching in Sunday school hour because we always seem to talk about whatever I'm going to preach on. We talked about man's depravity. We talked about the sin nature. We talked about the uh, the federal sin of Adam. When he sinned, all of humanity was spiraled into depravity. doesn't matter your station in life. doesn't matter your race, your ethnicity, uh, your bank account, your political views. If you draw a breath in this world. You're born a sinner. And the road you're walking on is a doomed road. But you know, it's not only a doomed road. The commentators teach us that this was also a dangerous road. Uh, It was not uncommon during this time. Bandits used to uh, travel the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. And uh, actually, I don't know how many of you uh, uh, knew this, but uh, this is a little off topic, but I love history. You know that? Do you know that the uh, modern-day banking system that we have today, the notion that you can take your money, put it in the bank here, travel halfway across the world, and find a place that will give you money, was started uh, by the Middle Ages, the Knights Templars, uh, that would watch over the road that the crusaders would take between Europe when they were making a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. And they developed a system whereby you could put your goods and your assets with those Templar knights, and they would watch over it, and they would give you a certificate whereby when you reached the Holy Land, you could redeem and access some of your funds. Why? Because it was too dangerous to travel these roads. Marauding bandits would travel and lay wait. Uh, they would be on the side of either road, uh, hidden amongst the crags and the rocks, in the hills, just waiting for someone to come along that they could destroy and take advantage of. Do you know that's the condition the sinner is found in in this world? I hate to break this to you. I know that modern day uh, sociology and psychology and philosophy would like us to believe uh, that this world is basically a good place. But do you know that's not the biblical answer? I heard a preacher this morning, and I'm not, I'm not trying to drag anybody in or through anything, but I, it struck me as strange when I heard him make this statement this morning. He said that there is enough uh, good in the worst of us and enough bad in the best of us that we ought not pick anyone apart. That sounds good, and I understand what he means. I believe we ought not pick people apart as much as we do, but can I say to you that for the lost sinner, there's not a shred of good in him. Not a single one. And do you know that for the believer in his life and in his condition, only through the blood of Calvary can we have any hope and any peace. And do you know that through the blood of Calvary we're absolutely perfect in every way, shape, fashion, and form? When God looks upon us, He sees us absolutely justified and righteous. This world is no good. This world has no good. This world does no good. And do you know that uh, given the opportunity, this world will do nothing but use and abuse the poor lost sinner. Look around you, you'll find it to be true. Uh, Everywhere around us, when we talked about this this morning, you find violence and murder and rape and hate and rage. Uh, And by the way, the heathen are raging this morning. This is a hate-filled world and it seeks to destroy. We find that the sinner is on this dangerous road. 
and uh, he can, uh, in a hurry and in a heartbeat, shipwreck his own existence. We see the road that we was on. Uh, but I want to say that we see not only the road he was on, we see the ruin that he encountered. As he was traveling this way, these bandits came upon him. And the Bible says, and I want you to notice the language because it's significant. Uh, look down in verse number 33. The Bible says, uh, and uh, like, or excuse me, down in verse number 31, the Bible says, uh, well, if I can get there, give me a second. Verse number 30, it says, And fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, and wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. They did three things, and I want you to notice them. The first thing they did was they accosted him. They did harm to him. The Bible says that they wounded him. Could I say, if you're here today without Christ, uh, I'm thankful for the blood of Calvary. You know that? I mean, I really am. I'm thankful that Calvary can wash us white of our sins. But could I say that if you, uh, every day that you live without Christ, you do damage to yourself. That though it may be forgiven in this life, you'll still have to live with some wounds and some scars. Some of you can testify to this. Uh, some of you that waited a few years before you ever accepted Christ. And I could go around the room uh, and uh, talk to people. You would admit that there are some things that you experienced you wished you could unexperience. Some scars, some wounds that you have to live with. Some things that you can't unsee or unthink. Some things you cannot unexperience in your life. Uh, and can I say that sin, uh, we have a tendency to think, well, a sinner just sins as much as he wants, and then he gets saved and he's forgiven, and it's no big whoop and it's no big deal. Can I say to you, I'm thankful that Christ can forgive the darkest and gravest of sins, but don't think that you're not harming yourself by living that way. We see that they uh, uh, costed him uh, and assaulted him. But I want you to notice that they uh, stole from him. The Bible says that they left him naked. They stripped him of his raiment. You know, the world will take everything it can get from you. You remember the prodigal son, don't you? And the prodigal son, he had friends and he had plenty of uh, people that would be his companions and they were happy while the drinks were flowing and the party was going. Uh, but just as soon, just as soon, just as soon as he reached the bottom of that wallet, they disappeared. This world will take everything it can from you. Oh, we, listen, we, we, ought to, we ought to instill these things in our children. You know it? I understand that in this room today, probably there's not a person here that don't have a salvation testimony. I don't know the hearts of anybody here. It may be everybody here is saved. It may be uh, that uh, not hardly anyone here is saved. I don't know your hearts. But could I say that our children really need to be gaining and understanding and grasping what the world has a desire to do to them. Because we are leading them as lambs to a slaughter. We're making every excuse for why the world's okay and why God's unreasonable today. We're making every excuse why it is that they are all right for trying to live like the world, dress like the world, look like the world, act like the world, talk like the world, and do the things that the world does instead of making it known to them that those things will eat away at who they are at their very soul. The world is not interested in our young people except to use and abuse and abandon them. That's the only interest. And by the way, that's what they did. They left him. They left him. And eventually, and by the way, you know that's the only hope for the sinner? That's the only hope is when the world finally does leave him and he realizes that the world didn't care about him in the first place. 
there might be somebody here and you've got all the religious aspects on the outside, but on the inside your heart's as black as the charred walls of hell. And you're finally coming to realize that this world is not in it for your good. You're finally starting to realize as all of your friends and all of the folk have left you, uh, the double life that I'm afraid that some people live, they've left you and they're gone. And the loneliness is starting to settle in. We see the ruin that he encountered. But I want you to notice, thirdly, we see the reality that he exemplified. You know, the Word of God, I've already said it's inspired and it fascinates me. It is absolutely important how the Word of God words things. And I love this, Brother Ralph. It says that they left him. And how did they leave him? Half dead. Half dead. Do you know that's the condition? That's the reality of the condition of every single sinner. They are half dead and only half alive. You say, what do you mean? Well, there's, there's two halves. There's a spiritual half and there's a physical half. There's a lot of people, the Bible talks about those that live in pleasure. Uh, they may live in pleasure, but they're dead while they live. And there is a sense in which people can walk around this world with a similitude of happiness, with a shred of some kind of contentment. But at the very core of who they are, there's nothing but deadness and dryness. Some of you remember what it was like before you got saved. Some of you remember what you thought was joy before you got saved. Some of you remember back when you thought uh, getting so drunk or high out of your mind that you couldn't remember the night before and waking up with your head busting. You remember when you used to think that was a good time. Then something changed, right? Then you found out what real joy could be. You found out what it was to commune with the Son of God. You found out what it was to be indwelt by the Holy Ghost. You found out what it was to have communion with the people of God. And you come to realize all those years you thought you was living it up, you was only half dead, only half alive. We find that every sinner is in this condition. So we've taken a look at the sojourner, Brother Ralph. But you know, sojourner is really not the important part because there's a lot of sojourners. But we find of the people that are here that, that uh, there are basically four people involved in this narrative. We could expand it and try to include other people. Uh, but we find there is the sojourner. Then we find a priest and a Levite. And they both walk on by. And there's a lot to be said about that. They had to be Baptists, you know. it, Because <laughs> they, they saw somebody in need and they just walked on by. They was probably headed to the temple. You know it? They was probably headed to the temple like those religious folk uh, outside of the sheep gate uh, that would just step over the man that was trying to get in the water. Uh, like those men uh, that would go to the temple at the hour of prayer at the gate, Solomon's gate that is called beautiful. And there stood a man broken and beggarly and they would just walk over him when he needed the Savior. You know, that's us. <laughs> that's us. We get these spiritual blinders on and we get to where we don't even see the needs of this world. But we won't talk about that. I want to say a word about the Samaritan. The Samaritan. I want you to notice a few things about him. This Samaritan is uh, traveling by. And notice it carefully. I don't want to misread it. I don't want to misquote it. I want you to look down at verse 33 and notice what it says. It says, But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. I want you to notice a few things about him. And one of them is not even spoken up, uh, but I believe it's worth noting. Notice first off the conflict of the Samaritan. Could I say that uh, if you studied your Bible, you know that probably, 
probably, listen carefully to this, probably if this Jewish man had been in his right mind and right health, he wouldn't have even wanted any help from this Samaritan. Are you getting me? The Samaritan was the mortal enemy of the Jew. The Jews called them dogs and half-breeds. Samaritans were the result of when Tiglath-Pileser, the Assyrian emperor, after he conquered the northern ten tribes of Israel, uh, he decided that rather than try to snuff them out, he would breed them out. And he brought in uh, his uh, pagan Gentile uh, citizens to come in and to intermarry with the Jews. And the uh, Jews from the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, this did not happen to them. And when they looked at the Samaritans... They were a product of pollution. They looked at them and they saw them as half-breeds, as dogs, as less than human. And if this Jew had been in his right mind, he wouldn't have wanted anything to do with this Samaritan. Now, here's what I want you to get. Only when the sinner gets out of his right mind, quote-unquote, will he have anything to do with the Savior. Let me tell you something. I I was telling them this morning in Sunday school, if you're friends with somebody long enough, at some point, God and life have a way of humbling people. And I've talked to a lot of people that the main problem, the reason they'll not get saved is because of their pride. They think they know everything. They're not in a position where they need answers. This man was in a position where he needed help. And though this Samaritan was the enemy of this Jew, and vice versa, Do you know that the Bible teaches uh, that for a righteous man, some would uh, dare to die? Peradventure, some would die. For a good man, uh, some would even die. And peradventure for a righteous man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible teaches uh, that uh, whosoever hath friendship with the world is at enmity with God. You and I were the enemies of God when Christ died for us. We were not the friends of God. One of the most misquoted and misinterpreted scriptures in all the Word of God is John fifteen thirteen. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. People will try to apply that to the Son of God. But friend, uh, that's, that's a human love. Greater love hath no man than this. That's a human love. But God loved us with a divine love that superseded and was superlative to any human love because God commendeth His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, we were the enemy of God when He died for us. We see the conflict of this Samaritan, but we see the concern of this Samaritan. It fascinates me that the same word is used for all three people, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, when it talks about them looking upon Him or seeing Him. It's the same word that is used all through the Word of God, and it denotes compassion usually. And it's interesting to me uh, that the Levite and the priest, they found Him and they felt sorry for Him, but they forsook Him. And that's the best that religion can do. It can find you, it can feel sorry for you, but that's it. But the Samaritan did not do this. When he saw this man, he did not pass to the other side, but he beheld him. And the Savior looks upon the lost sinner, and he sees him as in need of Calvary. God's concerned about sinners. If you have loved ones that are lost, God cares about them. That's a blessed truth. Because I'm going to be honest, friends, sometimes it feels like people don't. Can I be honest? Sometimes it feels like people don't care, doesn't it? 
Sometimes you pray and beg God to do something. You ask people, pray for my brother, my sister, pray for my mother, my father, my son, my daughter, my niece, my nephew, whoever it might be. And you feel like you're not getting through. And sometimes you begin to feel lonely in your endeavor to reach them and to pray for them and to try to touch them with compassion. But can I say to you that if no one else cares about them, even if you don't care about them, the Son of God does care about them. We see His concern, but we see His condescension. The Bible says He went to him. Now, this, this is how silly the idea of a work salvation is. It would be the equivalent of the Samaritan if he had looked at this man and said, if you'll get out of the ditch and come to me, then I'll do something for you. That's how silly a work salvation is. It would have been the equivalent as if the Son of God had looked at the thief on the cross and said, if you can get yourself off here, I'll help you. It would have been the equivalent if the man that had laid impotent for 38 years and needed some man to put him into the water, if he had looked and said, if you can get in the water, then I'll help you. But that's not what the Son of God does. He went to him where he was, in the condition he was in. He didn't ask him to clean up. He cleaned him up. Now, I believe in clean, that God cleans you up, amen? But, uh, but I, you know, I believe God catches him before he cleans him, Amen? I believe that He cleans up the sinner, but I don't believe the sinner has to clean himself up before he can come to the Savior. I don't believe that baptism is a prerequisite to salvation. On the other hand, friend, I do believe that salvation ought to be a prerequisite for baptism. The Bible teaches it to be so. I don't believe that good works are a prerequisite for salvation. I believe after we're saved uh, that we are foreordained to walk into good works. I believe that God changes a man, but I believe it's God that changes him, not the man that helps God change we find the condescension. He went to him where he was at. But then we see his compassion. What did he do? By the way, compassion that does not act is hypocrisy. Let me say that again. Compassion that does not act is hypocrisy. It's just nothing but lip service. I mean, we can say that we care. Uh, but the book of James addresses this. Uh, we can say that we love our brother, but if we see our brother in need and we shut up our bowels of compassion, James says, how dwelleth the love of God in him? We can say we love somebody, but unless we're willing to do something, it don't mean a thing. And we find that what did the Son of God do? And this blesses me. He did three things. I want you to notice the first thing He did was He healed him. He healed him. He bound up his wounds. He bound up his wounds. He undid what the world had done. He bound up his wounds. And could I say that before the sinner needs anything else, before he needs to be out of debt, before he needs a new car, uh, before he needs his marriage fixed, before he needs this, that, or the other, he needs to be saved. That's what he needs. I'm all for humanitarian efforts, but I believe we need to be careful lest we exalt them above evangelism. I believe we ought to reach people. I don't believe it's wrong. I'm thrilled about what we're doing, uh, you know, sending, sending all this stuff up to the Indian Reservation. That blesses my heart, man. I'm excited about it. I got stuff I need to throw away. You got stuff you need to throw away. I mean, it's, I'm thankful. I'd rather see, hey, I'd rather see it go to them than go to the Goodwill where they can make a, a, a small fortune off of it. Amen? Some of y'all don't go to the Goodwill. Y'all go sometime. It's eye-opening. I'm sorry, they charge more for stuff there than I would have bought for it new and if it did new and it didn't have the stains. Amen. I mean but I'd sooner see it go up there. But can I say this? Can I say that if they weren't trying to win people to Christ, I wouldn't be interested in sending a sock up to them. If if they were not interested in winning people to Christ, giving the gospel, 
uh, trying to get these people saved and get them uh, plugged in in a local church. If they weren't doing that, I wouldn't be interested in sending my pocket lint to them. I'm all for humanitarian efforts as long as they are a means for an open, effectual door for the gospel of Jesus Christ. First thing he did was he healed him. Second thing he did, first he made him healed. Secondly, he made him holy. The Bible says he poured in oil. Oil and wine represent uh, the Spirit of God in different capacities in the Word of God. And oil represents the Spirit of God in its sanctifying effect. To sanctify means to set apart. As you would go through the Old Testament, you would find that many times when a prophet or a king was uh, was ordained or coronated uh, for the office that God had chose them for, they would take, just as, uh, as Samuel did, uh, for that little shepherd boy, son of Jesse, he took a horn of oil and he opened it and he poured it upon his head. And it was significant of the indwelling and endowment of the Holy Ghost uh, for the effectual execution of an office. Sanctified him. Set him apart. Made him different. He poured in oil. He made Him holy. When Christ saves us, it's to the end that we might be holy. When Christ saves us, it's to the end that we might be holy. Secondly, thirdly, fourth, fifth, I don't know. I've lost it. It don't matter. He made Him healed. He made Him holy. But I'd say that He made Him happy. Uh, the wine, when it pictures the Spirit of God, pictures the joy and happiness of the Spirit of God. And by the way, it was not a picture of fermented, corrupted, polluted uh, bathtub uh, filth. That's not what it's speaking of. It's speaking of uh, wine in the sense of the blood or the fruit of the vine. And it speaks of the idea of uh, feasting, of enjoying yourself, of satisfaction. Could I say that when Christ saves the sinner... He gives them a joy. I mean, everybody's different. I understand that. We're all different. Around here, we're really different, Brother Ralph. (laughs) We're all different. And I know we're not all going to be the same, express ourselves the same, worship in the same sense. I mean, I understand that we ought to all worship in spirit and in truth, but I understand everybody expresses themselves differently. And, uh, you know, if you want to shout, shout. I'm for shout. I'm pro-shout. Amen. If you want to run, run. Just don't run over me. If you want to jump, my preacher used to always say, I don't care how high you jump as long as your feet land straight when you hit the ground. And listen, as long as you're speaking the language I can understand, I'm happy with it, okay? But I will say this. Everyone ought to know what the joy of the Holy Ghost is. Oh, Bob Jones Sr., you say everybody ought to get in the glory just once. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of people in this world, there's a lot of Christians that are unhappy because uh, they're too prideful and they're too carnal and too fleshly to ever allow their flesh to be embarrassed by worship. I didn't expect it to be popular. They're too prideful. They say, oh, I'd never do that. I'd never shout like that. Why not? Ain't you got something to shout about? Oh, I'm just not the crying type. (laughs) Let me tell you something, friend. There's a lot of stuff you'll cry about that don't mean a thing in this world. I'm not saying every time, every every way. I'm not saying that we all have to be some kind of cookie cutters or mimic or mock. I'm not talking about false fire or strange fire. I'm just merely saying that there's a joy that the Holy Ghost instills in our hearts when we get saved. We see a word or two about the Samaritan, but I want to say something else. And I've never really heard this dealt with, but I believe it's important. We notice the sojourner. 
Notice the Samaritan. But notice the sanctuary that he takes him into. He does not leave him on the side of the road. He does not merely bind up his wounds and say good luck and good day. But the Bible says he puts him on his own beast and takes him to the inn and stays with him for a time. Reckon wonder what that inn represents. Could I say that every single, every single believer ought to have a church home? Don't care who you are. You say, I'll preach you. You're just saying that because it's your preacher and it's walrid. That's nonsense. Open the Word of God. You'll see it everywhere. When Paul wrote uh, his epistles, he wrote them to churches or pastors, by and large. The only exception was when he wrote to Philemon. If you want to be a bittered up and angry person so he'll write a letter to you, go ahead. But I'd sooner either be a pastor or in the local church. Amen? There was an inn, a sanctuary, a place that he could take him to. And I want you to notice what he did. There's a few things that this Samaritan gave to this inn that are worth noting. I want to notice first off that he gave him provision. When this Samaritan brought him to the inn, uh, the Bible says that he took out two pence... And gave to him. You say, what does that two pence represent, preacher? Well, there's a lot of things I suppose it could represent. Uh, but, you know, if you want to ask me, just my opinion, I like to think that it's a picture of the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Uh, do you know that when uh, we have no part in saving a person, none whatsoever. We can share the gospel with them. We can witness to them. We can pray with them. We can show them in the Word of God. But it's God that must save them. We cannot save them. But do you know that after they are saved, that there are certain responsibilities that are placed upon the shoulder of the local church and upon the church member uh, responsibility to their local church? I still believe we've got a responsibility to the local church and a responsibility on the pastor's shoulders for the members in that local church. We find that whenever uh, the Samaritan took him there, he gave him this two pence and he said, I want you to provide for him. Can I say there's things you need in the local church? You need the local church. For some reason, I don't know why, it's just become common understanding today that uh, you you pick a church based upon what they can do for you. When did that happen? I thought you picked a church based on what you could do for them. I mean, you know, and as a pastor, I hear it all the time. People come to me and they'll say, well, what have you got for for me? (laughs) And I always want to say, well, we got three services a week. we got soul winning. we got a, a plate that passes every... What I'm saying is, what have you got for the church? Not for me. For the church. You're missing out if you're not a part of a local church. You're missing out. We have allowed government to rob the local church of much of its impact in the lives of believers today. There was a time when church discipline was a fearsome thing. Do you know why? Because the widows and the fatherless were depending upon the church to keep them from starving to death. Now, we have food stamps and welfare, and we don't need the local church anymore, right? I mean, that's the attitude of most people. Most people switch churches more often than they do underwear, and both of those thoughts are disturbing. That's, that's, that's bothersome. It's upsetting. We all need a local church because... The Samaritan has given some things to the end for the provision of those that come into it. We see the provision 
that He gave. But I want you to notice not only the provision that He gave. I like this. This blessed my heart. We see the provision, but we also see the purpose. What did He say to him? Look at verse number 34. The Bible says, And on the morrow when He departed, He took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him. I, I, I hope that the people of Walridge Baptist Church always feel cared for. I hope that if you're a part of Walridge Baptist Church, you make it your purpose and mission to care for others. And I believe we have a special duty and responsibility to our church family to try to meet their needs and to see what they do need. I understand there's some people take advantage of the church. I mean, there always is. There always will be. By the way, if there's not a chance of you being taken advantage of, you're probably not opening yourself up with the compassion that Christ had. I mean, after all, He died on the cross for the sins of all humanity, didn't He? Haste to death for every man. Sounds like He's being took advantage of when there's some that die without Christ, don't you? But He did it just the same. We see uh, the provision. We see the purpose. But I want you to notice we see a promise. I like this. He says, and when I come again, when I come again, that's a promise to the church. When I come again... But I say the Samaritan's coming back. And if you're a part of the church, and if you have... And I don't mean your, your name on some roll or some book somewhere that nobody even looks at. I mean, are you a part of the church? That's what I mean. I mean, is this your church family? That's what I mean. And let me tell you something. Uh, can I say that no matter what you give in or to the church, you know what he said? He said, whatever you spend above this, whatever you spend above this, Brother Ralph, when I return... He said, I'll repay you. I'll repay you. You say, preacher, sometimes I do stuff and I don't feel appreciated. Well, that's okay. The Samaritan's coming back. Amen. Say, preacher, I did. So I, I, I prayed for somebody. I wept with them. I, I, I laughed with them. I mean, I invested my life in them. Maybe, and they, they betrayed me and they lied about me and they turned their back on me. That's okay. The Samaritan's coming. Whatever you have to give over and above, I promise you he'll repay it. He's promised He's returning. And He's promised when He returns, He's repaying and He's rewarding. I don't know why God gives messages the way that He does. And I don't know what God may have done in your heart this morning. But whatever it is, I believe the Lord expects obedience to Him, don't you? Not obedience to me or to anybody, but to Him. And if God's spoken to your heart this morning on whatever it may be, I encourage you to do business with Him. Speak to Him. Won't you do that this morning? I hope that you will.